welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. All right, I think we can go ahead and get started, and then I'll, I'll be on the lookout for Dr. Sunt and make sure to add him uh, as a panelist as we go. So my name is Alex Bresham. I'm an I-6 resident, University of Michigan, currently serving as the PSRA president. I'm excited to introduce everyone to the rest of our panel for this webinar to discuss finding a job after cardiothoracic training during the COVID era. We're joined by our two moderators. Fatima Wilder is a, a traditional thoracic trainee at Johns Hopkins University. And Hunter Mahaffey is a four plus three track CT resident from uh, the University of Virginia. And both are current members of the TSRA Executive Committee. Our panelists, I'll start with um, Dr. Thirani. He's an adult cardiac surgeon at Piedmont Healthcare in Atlanta and the current Southern Thoracic Surgical Association um, president. Dr. Uh, Law from University of, America, of Maryland is a thoracic surgeon and the chair of the Department of Surgery. Dr. Kilich from Johns Hopkins University is an adult, car or adult cardiac surgeon. Um, Dr. Arnold is a cardiothoracic surgeon from Banner Health in Arizona. And Dr. Edwards is a thoracic surgeon from St. Joseph Mercy in Ann Arbor. We will also be joined shortly by Dr. Sunt, who is an adult cardiac surgeon and the chief of the Division of Cardiac Surgery at Massachusetts General Hospital. At this time, I'll turn it over to um, Dr. Mahaffey and Dr. Wilder. Go ahead and get us started. Thanks. Perfect. Thank you, Alex. And, and thank you so much to our panelists for, uh, for taking time out of your uh, busy schedules to join us and, and share a little, um, a little of your knowledge and experience. Um, <clears throat> maybe uh, we'll, we'll start the, uh, start the ball off with, with Dr. Arnold, um, you know, speaking with a lot of the um, uh, current trainees and folks that are in the, the position to be looking for jobs. Um, you know, what, in your opinion, what are the most important aspects of your first job out of training? You know, is it the, is it the money? Is it the amount of cases that you're going to have? Uh, you know, personal life considerations, um, you know, where's your family going to be uh, most comfortable, most happy? Is it your, uh, your surgical partners, um, you know, who, who you're going to kind of have to, to mentor you along? You know, what are your, what are your thoughts on these things? What should we be uh, thinking about for our first job? Yes. <laughs> All of those. I, I you know, I, I think um, probably the most important thing is your partners. Um, you can see, I, I was lucky when I started in practice that it was a, it, back then it was a traditional private practice group and they were very, very dedicated to my success because my success meant their success. And, and this kind of dovetails into a little bit of the finances, but how your partners are, how invested they are in bringing you along out of residency and how the money works out is actually kind of tied together. We actually pooled all our RVUs back then, and, and it was the combined cardiac and thoracic busy private practice in Virginia. And that really made no competition within the group. 
everybody wanted me to succeed. There was not competition. There was none of that inherent in the system. And that really made everybody flourish. That really made everybody flourish. So you've got to be a little bit careful when you start picking jobs now. And you got to, not only do you need to be sure that you've got partners who are actively going to help mentor you, who are going to be there and not view you as competition, but view you as a partner, as an investment, as, as a person they care about, as a family member. And that's what a really good partnership is, as a family. Um, and if you're, when the RVUs get, when the, when the money situation gets very heavily RVU weighted, they can start to view you, particularly if you're talented, you can start to be viewed as competition and they can start to not support you. And right now, uh, you know, I, and I'm not saying this to be derogatory toward your, toward your generation, but your case volumes in some places as independent surgeons are probably not as high as they might've been back in 1999 when we had a really high case volume as primary surgeons for better or worse, for ethical or non-ethical, unethical. But you, need, you want somebody, you want a group of people who are gonna be willing to be in the operating room with you, go over cases with you, be available for you. I think that's probably the most important thing. And then the money, Sorts, I don't want to say it's completely secondary, but it's relatively secondary. You want to be, you don't want to be buying into any practices anymore. Everybody's already told you that, right? Don't ever buy into any practices anymore. And then you're choosing between academics and private and hybrid. And we can talk more about that with the other panelists. I've, I've done both and it's, uh, it's very different. It's very different. Academics is different. The money's different. And you will, you will see that. So along those lines, Dr. Arnold, with regards to the type of practice you join, um, in light of the fact that many trainees these days may not have the volume that historically was available to trainees, would you advise that you try to sell yourself as a combined practice surgeon or stick to a specific either cardiac or thoracic for the sake of, you know, what, what do you think would improve your chances of getting a good job? I'm very biased about this, but I'm also the only probably private practice based person on the panel and the, probably the only person who practices both cardiac and thoracic at sort of full speed, not being great at either. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not on, in anybody on the panel's um, quality. I'm not that good, but I'm good enough. And, and it matters when you're getting some jobs. I will say that our administration at, at the Carilion Clinic um, we're, you're pretty good value when you can do adult cardiac pretty well and you don't shy away from a lobe or thoracic or an esophageal perforation, you're going to get hired. If you go in and you say, I'm an aortic valve specialist, an academic model, you're going to have a little bit tougher a time outside the academic world. Now, if you're really Tom Gleason, yeah, you may get that spot. But your average person, I still believe, and I've, I've believed this for a long time, that unless you absolutely are a thoracic oncologist and that's all you want to do, and you're going to be Chris Lau, you're that good, then that's what you should do. But for your average person, I think it helps to be able to swing the bat right-handed and left-handed. That's just me. That's not the academic approach, but it's a practical approach. Yeah. No, that's a, uh, that's a really good point. And, um, and I, and I appreciate the, uh, the insights there. Um, Scott, can I ask you a question on that? Just um, so we kind of make this a little more of a panel thing. Yeah. Don't you think it depends a little bit on um, how big your practice is and what city you're in? 
So for, for instance, sure. in Atlanta, you know, at our program, uh, I'm also in private practice now, by the way, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But we have, I don't do any more thoracic surgery anymore. I just do adult cardiac because we have three guys at our institution that just do thoracic surgery. So I think it depends also on the practice. If you're going to a big metropolis, you're still, people are just doing cardiac or they're doing thoracic. They're not doing everything. So I think it depends a little bit on the type of practice in the city you're in. Absolutely. And you don't want to go in and start, um, for lack of a better term, a pissing match with a new group of people when you go into town. On the other hand, if you are pretty well trained in both fields and they're saying, we need you to take this job and give up cardiac and just do thoracic or give up thoracic and just do cardiac, I guess my, the only thing I would say at your young ages right now is keep your options open. If you can, if you can try to keep your options open right now. Cause I mean, I just don't know which way some of these things are going to go. Um, and people have asked me, what would you give up? I, I don't know which one I'd give. I don't want to give any of it up. It's <laughs> a good point. Um, doc, Dr. Edwards, I actually, um, question for you. So how do you assess the, the clinical opportunities available and, you know, case volume, referral patterns, you know, how do you assess the quality of your, your partners, the people you're going to be joining, they have these same, same uh, issues that, uh, that, that we're discussing? Yeah, well, I would echo Dr. Arnold's sentiment in that your partner, you want to look at um, the fixed factors and the modifiable factors. So the things that you can't change about the job. So, um, you know, the location, if that's important to you or if that's important to your family um, and your partners, I, I cannot emphasize that enough. The people who you work with day in, day out are the people who are going to support you. They have to be invested with your success. You have to like them because, you know, when things go sideways, they are also going to be the people who you would you would hope would help and not um, not uh, judge you um, for that. And so I would say your partners are going to be number one. Um, the referral patterns can be tricky, and you know that's always something that um, you're told yes you can build new referral patterns, and it's certainly doable. But you have to be a little careful with your institution, your landscaping. You have to know the region very, very well. And so you really have to do your research and understand where those referral patterns are. Um, are they within your institution, outside? And, um, you know, where are the opportunities? There are always opportunities, but some opportunities are harder than others. So I would say those are going to be the two major uh, kind of fixed factors. Case volume, if you're, you know, the three A's, affable, available, enable, you, you can build case volume, especially if you're bringing in new programs, if you're bringing in new screening programs. For example, for lung cancer, if they don't have a lung cancer screening program, you start a lung cancer screening program. There's your volume. Um, and then complexity, um, you want to be in a situation where you have the support for the type of complexity that you want. So um, if you, say, want to do, you know, mitral valve repairs robotically or, you know, whatever your niche is, make sure the institution can support that. You know, don't try to start an ECMO program in a program with three perfusionists not necessarily going to work. So, um, so you really have to do your homework and talk to not just the people within the institution, but regional individuals. And you really have to kind of um, um, not open all doors and ask anybody who knows anyone in the neighborhood what the, what the uh, specifics are. 
So another question for you, Dr. Edwards, something that's probably a very hot topic, but no one really likes to address is that of money. Yeah. What would be your advice or anyone else's that cares to comment on negotiating? Um, I think many graduates want to take the first thing that's offered because none of us have been making real money for many years. How much should you negotiate um, and how far should you push it before you accept what's offered to you? So good question. And again, do your homework. So you have to know what the mean and medians are within uh, various percentiles for the type of job you're looking at. Um, and that information is published. And so you, you know, go to your program director, say, you know, when you are hiring people, where's the book that you use, and then extrapolate that to the specific region. Also talk to leaders within that region. So if you're going to the Northeast, you know, reach out to, you know, or if you're going to the South, reach out to Dr. Tarani. Hey, when you are hiring people, what are you offering them within a comparable job description and, and, um, region and starting salary because that starting salary is very important it's kind of the base um, from which you can only increase but you know if that base is a little bit too low then subsequent increases may be a little bit tricky also recognize that there are non-salary um, non-direct salary um, benefits that can also help you um, you know research support and research funding is important if that's something that that you want and you should have a dollar number associated with startup funds in any contract you go to many institutions and they tell you, well, you know, this is the contract that we give everybody and we can't change it. They can change it. <laughs> Everything's negotiable. I just like to comment on that too, though. I think there's a difference between academics and again, the private practice world. When you're coming into an academic practice, I mean, I, I can tell you because I've had several different positions and I've had people not tell me my salary, you know, we're going, they're like, do you want the job? You're like, yeah. And I'm thinking, have I accepted the job? Do I know what the salary is? Um, but in, in usually in academics, there's some set amount you're going to make as an assistant professor. And you can, you can probably negotiate a little bit, but you're not going to be able to negotiate a giant difference in that first job. And, and I don't even know if you want to be nickel and diming over the amount you're going to make on your first job, because what you really need during that, that period are you need people that are going to mentor you, people who are going to have your back, people who are going to really, you're going to ride on their coattails. And I don't think if you don't want to come in looking like I'm the most high paid assistant professor and I, yet I need help. So I, I think you got to be a little careful when you're, especially in academics for that first position and it changes. And certainly when you start looking at a higher position or a different position where you're being recruited, you can certainly then have a little more play in that. Yeah, I, I mean, I would echo that. I would say, though, that, that there's certain things that you're going to need that if you don't have in your contract, you will not get. So, um, yeah. you know, startup funds, et cetera. So, yeah, I think um, that's the important part, Chrissy. I think you're right. I mean, I'm, this is historic 16 years ago, but I was told this is your contract. Guyton told me, he goes, you will not negotiate this. Go ahead and pay a lawyer you know, $2,000 for view it. But that lawyer is going to, you're going to waste your money on it. For academics, it's a little bit more stringent. But there's other things besides your salary that M Melanie's pointing out that are negotiable. And I think that's the part of it um, across the board. And I remember Guyton said, you're going to make what John Puskas made. And I'm just telling you that's the fact. So don't even negotiate with me. What else do you want to talk about? So I think those are the important things to walk away from. Yeah, I, I'll chime in. I, I've never... Uh, Maybe a, a, the S stands for sucker, um, but um, I've, I've never negotiated my salary in any job I've ever had 
in my life ever. Is that good or bad, Tor? Well, that's what I'm saying is that the S on my forehead doesn't stand for sucker. Um, but I, I think it's more about alignment of your interests and and the interests and needs of the group that you're joining. And and there and it's that's as unique as you are. And if your um, your interests are in providing great clinical care and 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 paying off your loans and establishing your family in a community that you'll be part, all that stuff, um, which is really good, then that's one kind of frame of reference, perhaps for a, a community practice or a private practice. And, and that's a very different discussion than the, the discussion that you have in an, in an academic organization where you kind of have to come to accept that you'll probably get paid less. You'll probably also do fewer cases. You've got because you've got other interests in other areas, and so the the way the practice is structured will be different. Um, so it's all part of a of a of a of a matrix. And in the end, the question is: Are you and the chief in alignment about what it is that you want, what they want, and what the organization can offer you? And is it the right place for you to, to start that career? Whichever end of those spectrums, which are all of which are legitimate, you, you may be on. Tor, when you say that it's a red flag when you're looking for a job in the academic center and you don't get the transparency of what you just talked about for getting a job at that institution, right? Okay. I think that, that to me is a red flag Guyton and I sat down when I got my first job in 05. We sat down and we talked about what I was going to do. I would made very little money compared to what we're doing now. And Tor made less than I did when he joined you know, early on because the salaries have slowly gotten better. But, but the point is we were aligned and that's what worked for me because he was so transparent. If they aren't transparent, that should send you a red flag that that's a place that you want to be at. Wouldn't you say, Tor? Yeah, that, to, to me, that's the, the most important thing. So I agree with you, Melanie, you don't want to be a sucker. You don't want to be a, a, an idiot. Um, you want to, you should speak up about what it is that you really want and what it is that you really hope to accomplish in your career and, and what kind of support that you, you want. And, and if, if the relationship is not the right relationship, then that's the wrong place to be. Yeah, I, I think that that really echoes the, the um, key of it because you're right if you are aligned then the things that you need to succeed should not be a big kind of point of contention um and and hopefully that would be the case in that you know if they're hiring you to do x then you would think you would be provided with the uh things that you need to make that happen um but that doesn't always happen. And you're right, that should be a red flag that this may not be a right place. But you know, when people are looking at their options, and they're trying to sort out, what do they mean when yes, we're going to help you build x program. And then you list all the fine things that you need. And they're oh, well, you know, we really can't support that. And that's, I think that's, that's, that's especially, especially that's, in this year of COVID, especially yeah. in the year of COVID when, when all the hospital systems have financially a little bit tighter and that's what this seminar is about, is during COVID. Yeah. I foresee all hospital programs being a little bit um, tight with their money for the next two to three years. Yeah, um, 
They're yeah, for sure. So, They're for sure tight. And yeah. the other thing I, I think that's good, you're going to see happen is we haven't talked that much about a pure private practice model. And a lot of you guys will look at those jobs. I, and I did. And I'll tell you how those go typically is you, you get your salary and um, whatever it is. Uh, we started folks in, in at Carillion Clinic. I think it was four something. Can't remember how it was, but it was like four, four fifty-five. And then you were partner. And so, well, what's partner salary? Well, we didn't really. You didn't really talk about that. That was you, you don't really talk about. It. You advance, and then you got your partnership. But I think there are going to be fewer and fewer private practice folks out there. That's already been a very dwindling group, and then COVID is going to be pushing. Some of these private guys are now going to be going hat in hand to banner or to whatever employer is local and try to sell their practice to them. Suddenly your negotiating power goes away. And now these hybrid models, um, they're, they're hard to deal with. I will tell you, uh, acad academics is even a little bit more straightforward in some ways than some of these really tight, banners very tight, right? I can tell you right now, this is a tough, it is a tough area to negotiate. So that, I'm in the hybrid program now, so. That's a point worth, point worth making it's 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 if you're if you're negotiating if 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 you're if the if you're being paid by the hospital not by my division which is in a physician's organization da 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 da, da you know i right. can discuss with you about whether our interests are aligned and such but if the discussion you're having is with a hospital system those people are business people, and that's yeah, a whole different set of rules. And then all those things that you you said, Melanie, are exactly on target. But so most people coming out. For me, it doesn't matter what's written down. It doesn't matter what's written down. If Christine Lau tells you she's committed to your career and this is what she can support, da -da 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 -da, take that to the bank, it doesn't matter what's written down. But it's a completely different story. If you're dealing with a hospital administrator whose whose uh, initials afterwards after their name are MBA and not MD or MHA, but but Tor, but most fresh grads coming out are not going to be negotiating directly with a hospital, right? That's a very rare scenario, very rare that I know of. You talked a little bit about about COVID. It's it's. Uh, now I don't know what everybody else's institutions are are like. Ours, you know, six months or so ago, um, was in a in a panic. They um, about a couple months ago they canceled all our retirement benefits contributions, which is, I mean, and bonuses. There'll be no bonuses this year. So for depending on what the structure of your group is that that amounts to a fair chunk of change for us yep. um uh now the now the hospitals are doing they, our hospitals are doing better than they thought they would so now there's this sort of okay what are what are you going to do now it turns out you've made 150 million dollars already this year what's you know so i um and I'm apologize for being on late and I know this was sort of my assignment was um i i, th I think um, my, my experience with, with folks looking for jobs is they all get anxious uh, about uh, June of the year before and are anxious that they don't have a job yet and they're going to be finished in a year. Um, and even in the best of times, often, often those jobs aren't secured until the spring. 
Uh, does it seem late? Yes. Uh, is it hard to get your medical license in time? Yes. Um, so my, my hospital administrator is always leaning on me, recruit early, recruit early. Um, but right now, everybody's in a situation where they're not quite sure. Um, I think things will be a lot different three months from now. We'll have a much better view of what, uh, what next year is going to be like and what our capacities uh, for hiring and such are going to be. Did we advise these kids to, if, the, if you're ever going to do a, a super chief year, if you're ever going to do an extra year, is this the year to do it? Um, or should you go out go ahead and confront the job market? Because once you do that super chief year and you're uh, the anterior leaflet specialist on the East Coast, then you're the anterior leaflet specialist on the East Coast and you don't want to do, uh, you don't want to do a coronary anymore. Um, but I don't know, is this the year? Is this the year that we should, instead of pushing them out into the world, should we be sequestering them and say, why don't you stay with us and get an extra year under your belt? Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a great question. And, and I'd love to open that up to the, the people who will be uh, interviewing and uh, hiring folks uh, this coming year. I don't think so. I think, I, I think if you have an interest in doing it, do it. Don't do it just because it's a COVID year and you may not find a great job. To me, if, if you were interested in doing aortic surgery or, or valve surgery or whatever the super fellowships, vast surgery, then do what's in your heart. I think that's what you do but to make an exception for this year, because there may or may not be good job offerings. I'm not sure is a reason to do it. Cause if you weren't going to do it ahead of time, you're going to do a kind of a yeah, piss, yeah. Poor, piss poor job and actually trying to do it. You're kind of forcing yourself into something that you didn't want to do. And, I, and I've never believed that, that your heart's fully into it. Right. That's just yeah. my personal opinion. I agree. I agree. I also think that you're Tor said earlier, I remember this very, very clearly being September and sending out all these letters and expecting my email box to just fill up with replies and nobody, nobody <laughs> wrote me back. And then in about November, all of a sudden it was urgent. I needed to come out on the day before Thanksgiving to interview because there were other people that want, you know, there were all these jobs. So it, it really doesn't start up until really end of October, early November when people start, you know, and then of course it's also the meetings, right? The STS and the double ATS and, but um, I, I wouldn't, there are jobs. I mean, people are moving, it's, it's surprising, but you know, like they said, don't make any big decisions during your internship year. I would have said, don't make any career decisions during COVID, but people are still moving. Um, you know, we're looking for a heart transplant um, uh, surgeon, and I think people are gonna be looking. Um, so it's just a matter of, of figuring it out where, you know, it's harder, you know, to figure out who's looking, but people are. So Dr. Killick, she, uh, uh, Dr. Law brought up an interesting question uh, or an interesting point. You know, usually STS, double ATS, these are great networking opportunities. You can knock out, meet a, a whole bunch of people all at the same time. Um, but in the setting of a virtual world, um, you know, how should we na uh, navigate this? How, how should we uh, be finding these jobs and, and uh, making contact with, with folks? Any thoughts or recommendations? Yeah, no, first of all, I'm honored that people ask me my advice about such a thing that no one has any experience with. This is the one and only time anyone's ever dealt with this. So any <laughs> advice is purely, you know, what we think. So I think what Dr. Sun said is right on, which is hospitals and academic centers are trying to figure out what to do with this. They thought they were going to lose a lot of money, yet I see a lot of people on here with scrubs. We're all doing cases. We're all still fairly busy. The hospital realizes it's not going to go under, and the number one killers 
heart disease, number two, cancer, even despite the COVID. So I think uh, there is definitely a um, opportunity and there's definitely a need for a specialty, no doubt about it. In terms of the timeline of where things are, I think what Dr. Lau said is, is kind of right on. You go through this period where you freak out because it's your last year and you have no idea what you're going to do in life, as opposed to years before where you knew this is where I was going to train, this is the fellowship I'm going to do. And to be honest, there's nobody else in the same boat as you. So you're the only person that's going to take this job at this place or apply for this job at this place. So all of those things are extra stressors, even without COVID. So what I think is in this time of uncertainty, you just kind of go down to the basics, which is okay. It's fall time, you start applying, you start looking at, at things. And this is where I think mentorship is gonna play a bigger role than it ever has in the past. Because you're not gonna be able to go to President Durrani's STSA meeting this year, right? Because it's gonna be held virtual. You, you're not gonna be able to talk to people or run into them or get ice and say, hi, you know, I heard a lot about you. And that takes away a little bit. I think, you know, there's no one really knows. Is it best if you try to cold call an institution and say, I'm really interested. This is where I'm from. I've always heard great things about this. If you have your mentor, ask if, you, if they know somebody that they can get you in contact with. If you keep an ear close to the ground, if you ask to collaborate with people in academia, or if not in academia, maybe an institution that's not necessarily academic, but your neighbor such as you know, some of the quality initiatives that are around, like the Maryland Quality Initiative, the Michigan Quality Initiative, and those kind of things where you uh, kind of get to know people in a different level. It's kind of tough. I, my suggestion would be to try to get involved in exactly what you guys are doing on the panel right now, just committees and societies where you can interact with various people and just kind of keep the conversation going. And that's probably the only real, real advice I can give on that. I think having the mentors reach out can help. I, I've certainly changed my mind about folks just based on a couple of phone calls. I distinctly remember one and he said, look, I know maybe you interviewed this guy and he was super quiet and really shy, but I'm telling you, if I had to go to war with anybody, I would go to war with this guy. I want this guy behind me. He is the guy. He doesn't say much, but he can run an OR and he can, and I, I hired him based on that. So, I mean, having some people reach out to reach, if you're remotely interested in something, Having some folks make a few phone calls on your behalf, there is nothing wrong with that by any means. And, you know, most of your training pretty good places, have them make some calls on your behalf. And, and sending, sending out emails to, to folks and sending your CV is just fine. It's so I was, yeah, I was supposed to talk about a little bit of this. So I'll, maybe I'll chime in a little bit. So I think that because, as Ahmed said, we don't have meetings, it's difficult to do that. And so I know at meetings, uh, to all of us on the panel, would, people would come up after our talks and talk to us, and that was a great way to interact with people. But I have to be honest, if I get this week, I've gotten three emails, one from Cleveland Clinic, one from Columbia, um, and one from out west saying, hey, I've got a resident, are you looking for someone? So if I get a cold email from someone um, who's a resident who I've never met before, I have to be honest with you, I, I do take it a little bit less strongly than, for instance, Eric Roselli emailed me yesterday about somebody. And Eric and I are very good friends. He's at the Cleveland Clinic, for those of you who don't know him. And I responded within two hours to Eric and said, hey, Eric, I'm not looking for somebody this year, but I've met this person before. Thank you so much. Let's stay in touch. I gave her my cell phone number. And that way we'll stay in touch because things may happen. You don't know what's going to happen to our practice. 
and we have you know seven surgeons at one a total of nine surgeons and any of those may leave in the next two months who knows so but eric sending him email probably did carry more weight quite honestly than if billy bob just sent me an email out of the blue because i actually don't know that that person is is um can operate is nice is not nice it has a good affect does not have good affect but i think to me it, it does make a little difference however when I do get an email from somebody, I always respond back to them immediately too, right? So I do have that interaction, but I most likely will call somebody at that institution and say, hey, is this legit or not, right? I mean, you're not gonna just accept a resident ever without having talked to somebody who's trained them, right? So, so I would say that it means more with a mentor does it, but I think it's also very good for anybody to reach out to anybody, especially in the day of, of emails and stuff like that. I think it's okay. Just for me, it means more um, if, if somebody does it who I know. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I agree with you and. And I knew that because I saw your head. I know you well enough. I, I was know. waiting. And, I, I was and, waiting. and this is the thing. This is the thing. I mean, it's great if you get it, if you, if, if I get an email from somebody that I know. Right. But, but there are residents out there. You, one of the things that you need to learn to do for your whole career is how to how to present yourself, how to argue your case, how to step right up there and be professional and, and you don't have to be aggressive and nasty and, and pushy and such, but there's you, you've got to learn to, to advocate for yourself. And, and I think that now is as good a time as any, you just step right up and say, this is who I am. These are my qualifications. This was what I'm interested in. And you, you, um, you, you should want to talk to me. But most likely, Tor, you're going to talk to somebody at their institution. Let's just right. make that clear. That's, so, that's along the. <laughs> but team, I think sorry. I'm yeah. wearing, sorry, but along the lines of the topic of presenting yourself, what would you say is the best way to do that in the era of COVID? In the sense of, is it Twitter? Is it whatever other social media platform there is? If you don't feel that you have the connections at your institution, but you think you would be a great fit for whatever program may be looking. And before we answer, I just want to make an announcement to all of the attendees that you can uh, ask questions. Please post them in our Q&A box and we'll make sure to answer them before the end of the session. Yeah, I'd like to know what Tor does with his Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> smart, Alec. <laughs> yeah, I'm I, being assertive. You told me to be assertive. I'm just being assertive. <laughs> and I'm giving it back to you, just like uh, as you deserve. Um, uh, oh, it's back when he's been hired on his Twitter. That's how he does it. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know how to use Twitter. <laughs> so I think that's important, though. Uh, I think it's important for two reasons. Uh, I just joined, so I'm super excited about this whole Twitter thing. I get most of my information from this. Like, you don't need Plavix anymore for Tavers. That came out of the European Society, and I got that on Twitter before I, I read anything about it. So I use it as a, uh, as a kind of guide to get a whole bunch of information. But as an applicant, you got to be kind of careful about the information that's represented for you. And one of the things for those of us that do have Twitter accounts, I would do check is the whole med bikini thing that happened recently. The Journal of Vascular Surgeons printed an article where people looked online for young vascular surgeons and said what was appropriate and inappropriate and it was quite sexist and that to be retracted. But this kind of talks about the implicit bias and unconscious bias that exists when we put ourselves out there 
that we've always, I think, as cardiothoracic surgeons have, have, have told applicants that you got to be careful about. Uh, obviously, uh, the more of yourself you put out there, the less people look at what your content is and the more they make predisposed uh, and preconceived notions. Yeah, I would, I would echo that. I think that um, while certainly that um, whole um, kerfluffle um, really un unearthed the um, bias, it, it's still there. You know, the people who are doing the hiring are conservative. I mean, that's just the reality of life in 2020 and will probably be the reality of life in 2021 and 2022. So um, while it would be amazing to live in a world where you could be yourself on social media, this is not this world. And especially in a competitive job market, you don't want anything that's going to be deemed as you being a potential problem or liability for a group or institution to be promoted and be out there. So, you know, um, kind of it is what it is. Um, but I would say, you know, if you <clears throat> if you've met anyone and, you know, I'd echo, echo Dr. Suntz, um, just reach out, you know, hey, Dr. Thrani, I saw you in the hallway at STSA and I you you waved at me. You may not have known it, but, you know, just I, I think at this point you really don't, especially if you are well crafted and present yourself very well. And then you have the people to back you up to say, oh, yes, absolutely, because you know, while it's great to have mentors who are going to reach out for you, not everyone is as proactive, even though they may, you know, want to be so. So maybe it's a webinar now, right? You say, hey, I saw a webinar that you're in, right? Yeah. Because that, that may be the 2020 COVID thing. There's so many webinars and there's a lot of leadership uh, of all the societies, not STSA, but STS, AATS, yeah. Harvard, everybody's doing webinars, maybe Fatima, that's a, that's a place where it becomes an easy, hey, I saw a webinar, Dr. Sant, that you did. I, I found some things to resonate with me, one, two, three, and, and by the way, I'm looking for a job and here's my CV. Maybe that's a, a way in where we, we didn't do that in 2019, right, or 2018. Well, there's, there's, there's uh, you know, I, uh, Hunter, I, I made a suggestion that I think that the TSRA should have an online catalog of of everyone who's graduating and just a paragraph from each one what their interests are because i can tell you that i have i don't know who's graduating this year yeah i don't have a list of everybody who's graduating and maybe what's being suggested here is even the next step beyond that um which is tsra could have could have uh speed dating webinars where yeah. folks are are up talking about themselves and what their interests are, and and we as prospective uh, employers would would be able to see people too. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's, that's a, a that's an excellent point. Parallel to a dating app that, and again, I don't want to get you know, myself in trouble. Don't, but, but don't call it a dating. About matching, call it something else. But when you matching. talk about matching <laughs> interests, yes, I mean that's really what we're talking about. Yeah, is how do you match? geographic interests, social interests, uh, rural setting, uh, 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 metropolitan setting, aortic disease, transcatheter, all of these things, that's really what you're trying to do is create a relationship, a professional relationship that aligns those, those interests. So there might be something that yeah. 
Yes, yeah, cool. I like that. Cool. I think it's, it's important. A, uh, it's an excellent point in something that we're actively uh, uh, working on through TSRA and have, have not yet come up with the um, perfect uh, uh, way to spin it yet. Um, but that does lead to another question. Where um, folks who are in uh, these positions to be uh, looking for um, for new employees, wh where are you currently looking? Where, you know, where, where do we need to be um, posting our CVs or posting our, um, uh, our information and our interests? Um, is there any central place, CTSnet, um, that, that you are reaching out to or, or using? We, we, did, we did CTSnet um, we were, when we were looking, then we were advertising, we did CTSnet. And I found this to be kind of interesting, um, and you, you guys can tell me how this works. When we were advertising at Annals and JTCBS, most of us now read those online, at least I do, and I don't see the, I don't see any of the job postings anymore, so I'm not even sure that's even a legitimate way for us to be advertising for jobs, and for, but for you guys to be advertising to us, I think it's probably CTS, I, I think, probably CTSnet. Yeah. I think it's CTSnet. Yeah. And I'll say something too about the, 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 the money tr train that the tour mentioned, the hospitals are loosening up a little, but they're still not uh, being super um, um, open about having people travel. So we're not meeting people the same way we used to. So at least for us, first rounds are like this, it's like this zoom thing. And so you do like your little speed dating zoom, uh, interview, and then you decide if if that person's worth an actual site visit. And we, maybe we should have been doing that all along. I don't know, but yeah. I will say I've seen some pretty terrible Zoom interviews. And I think there's still an etiquette. Like Melanie looks beautiful. Melanie's beautiful. She got this beautiful background. She's dressed. She's beautiful to begin with. Um, and I mean, I'm not <laughs> terrible. I mean, I mean, we nobody's gonna hire him, right? Um, so. You know how you look matters but what i've been impressed with is the number of people who haven't followed up very well i think if you do a zoom interview follow it up send an email to the people just like you would in any social situation yes i'm interested thank you so much for your time um ask some other questions start a dialogue after that but don't just like drop it it's it's gotten it's it's my sense of this whole thing is it's been very impersonal and very cold and uh, it hasn't been a whole lot of fun for anybody. Yeah. Um, but, but I think you, you present yourself the way you want to be presented. You know? I think there's nothing wrong with, now you don't have to be irritating, but little communications. Yeah. Whatever, but just, just little, touch, little touch points. Show um, you're interested. I mean, show your interest. Remember that the people who are interviewing you are really pretty busy. And we've got seven or eight other people like you. What's sticking out to me is that email you sent that said, I really, really got something out of that. This is what I'm interested in. Please keep considering me. If you just, if you're too passive about it and say, well, I don't want to bother him. I mean, as, as far as it, don't, don't be a pest, but send something. I'm really interested. I really like your place. So, and, and why? And why? Yes. Yes. In our discussion, what struck yes. me about, about your organization yeah. this 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 and this again yeah. it's this is in a way this is matchmaking it's all about interests and if if you pick up mm -hmm. on on and of course you want to be sincere if what you're sincerely most 
intrigued by in our discussion about how we format things in our organization resonates with what is actually most important to me, then that's a good thing. And frankly, vice versa. If you have to do your homework tour. What's actually most important is something or other else, and it's not a good match, then that's helpful, helpful too. Yeah, yeah you, you have to do your homework. I think that's critically important. When you, when you, if you're, if you're going to apply to the Cleveland Clinic and they have four aortic surgeons, you don't say, hey, I want to become and build an aortic practice. That's going to sound really dumb because you haven't done your homework. Because you have Lars, and you have Eric, and you have others there. So just do your homework. The other thing I was going to say, and maybe I'm a little old school, but <clears throat> I, I like following up an email with an actual card that yeah. you actually mail. And if I know somebody, an email, listen, that's, it takes a millisecond to do an email. It takes a little bit more energy to actually put a stamp on something, lick the envelope, or do a little silly thing, and send it to me. So if I get a personal email, a personal card after an email, that takes it to another level for me, quite honestly, because you're taking some extra time off. And that, that to me is very important. So that's just another additional thing that I wanted to comment on. Yeah, what I like to hear is I like you to have done your homework and I like you to somebody to tell me like, oh, I want, I want to live in Baltimore because I have family who's in the county or what, for whatever reason, there's some tie, there's some association yeah. that they have that they want to be part of it. And, and, I think Zoom is really, what I think is hard is I don't remember people as well. Like I can mm -hmm. talk to somebody and then I can see them and I don't recognize them. Like I would recognize them if I met 10 residents, you know, during interviews. It's just a totally different feel. So I think somehow tell me some story about yourself so I can connect with you. That's not just, you know, I want to be a thoracic surgeon. I want to be a cardiac surgeon, but tell me why. Like, you know, I just think that's really important. You have an understanding of that. So we're coming up on about 10 minutes left. Um, so I was hoping we could hit some of these questions that have been written down for us. I think this first one we've touched on already, but if there's someone that has a last uh, comment on the topic of timeline, so when to start the process um, and do you think they should be starting sooner or waiting a little bit longer to see if COVID, you know, calms down and things go back a little bit to normal? Maybe Dr. Sanj or Dr. Lau, I think you guys commented on this earlier. Anybody who would like to chime in? I don't think I would wait. I mean, if you're if you're starting to look, I don't think there's anything wrong with starting starting now. I just wouldn't be insulted if you don't hear a lot That's right away. I would just keep trying. And I, I would, you know, the programs you want to go to or you think you want to be in a certain area, I would reach out to them multiple times. Yeah, because we, we're... You know, we're all thinking, okay, so what are the, what are the options? And the other things, things, things change. So, you know, tomorrow, one of my faculty members may come in and say, you know, I just took a job someplace else, right? So, yeah. right. in a way, we're, we're all uh, genuinely, constantly in recruitment mode. Right. Constantly. Um, and and, and uh, so, I think exactly what Christine said is, is, is right. Reach out now, but don't be upset if you, if you don't get a definitive answer. Do you agree with that, Melanie? I do, and I think the um, revisiting in a few months is, is important too, because the situation with COVID is evolving um, and there's so many variables. And even, you know, just in a normal interview process, someone who maybe you, you may be competing with 
may take a job someplace else that may open up for you. You know, there's so many possibilities and variables. So if you're, if you have your heart set on a specific region, then, you know, list your top programs and, and just keep reminding them that you're um, available and, and really invested. Yeah. Um, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, uh, Dr. Thrani, I, I see you've uh, uh, earmarked the, the next question about uh, hybrid practice. Any yeah. thoughts on, on different rules of engagement, uh, mentorship, sponsorship, um, any thoughts? Yeah, no, I think that one of, one of the things that I get, so just for those of you who don't know, I, I spent from 05 to 17, I was in a pure academic program at Emory in Atlanta, and then for two years went to DC, MedStar in Georgetown, and, and then now I have truly come back into what I consider a hybrid program. And so where what I mean by that is that these are private practice programs that are also doing research. And so there are advantages for the academic program because I loved it. I had a great time. There's a camaraderie ship, the residency, the research, that you had so many conferences. It was conference by death. I mean, you just went to a conference every morning for hours and hours and and so there's a lot of positive things for that. And I think that if you're going to head towards research, especially like Christina did, she had a very active and still does an active NIH lab. I think you have to stay within the academic program. Um, and I think that the first five years is almost the best place to be in some ways, right? Because you have so much protection that you're guaranteed there. It was invaluable to me that at that time I could reach out to John Puskas and I could reach out to Robert Guyton, legends in the field, and I could ask them about anything. So that was a great time for me in my first five years to be a part of that. It also did allow me to get involved in societies. If you're interested in societies, it's very hard to do that out of private practice. It's, um, I think, uh, harder to do that out of private practice in an academic uh, field. Um, where I've kind of, my, one of my mentors is a guy named Mike Mack, who everybody on the, the participants in the panel have heard of. And, and Mike has, I believe, was one of the earliest guys that really hit the hybrid practice and made it work successfully, being past president of three societies, Ixmix, Southern, and the STS, has stayed in this private practice type of mode for his entire life. And that's kind of been one of the, the, the models that I've used for a hybrid practice. So I think a hybrid practice is one that does um, a lot of surgery, um, but also has, has uh, access to new technology Last year, our, just our Valve Center published 150 papers. I would argue that that is more than most academic centers do. Um, and so it has, um, but there's a difference in this. I don't have residents necessarily helping me. I, do, I did my Bentol this morning, right? I cut skin and I had a first assistant helping me. So the hybrid practice is somewhere in the middle. People who want new technology, a lot of surgery and research, um, but are giving up the resident training, unless you do a super fellowship, you're giving up the resident training. Um, so that, and, and most likely coming into a hybrid practice or a private practice, you're going to have to give up on some of the society stuff, unless you already were plugged in. And I got plugged in early, so that was easier for me. So there are gives and takes, and I, I know we don't have much time, so I'll just end there to, just to see if other people have some comments on that. Yeah, I would echo what... Um... Uh, Dr. Tarani has said is that if you have an inkling that research is something that's important to you, 
um, the best place to get started is in a pure academic setting. Um, you'll, have the more, you'll have more support, you'll have more time, and there will be less pressure on your time in those first few years for you to learn the ins and outs of research and really kind of develop the skills that you need to be successful. And then, you know, if you decide you want to then, you know, uh, explore other avenues, you'll have the, the background to do that. The other thing I, I would say is to be prepared the first few years, particularly in private practice, and, and, and Dr. Torani said it, across the table from you on July the 3rd won't be Dr. Torani and it won't be Dr. Sun. It's going to be a PA. And your, your family's at home in a new house that you probably just paid too much money for. It's going to be the most stressful year and probably two or three. For me, it was about five years of my entire life. You, you, everybody's looking at you. Are you any good? Are you as good as he is? Are you going to be able to build the practice? There's so many pressures on you. I just, it, it is worth stating that, and that's why we get back full circle to how important your, your partners are and a family, or as Chris said, my family lives in Baltimore. That counts. That counts. You're going to need support. You're going to have a young you may have a young family. It, it, it counts. All those things count. And reach out to us. I mean, there, yeah. uh, you, you've got um, three questions. people kind of in the private practice um, model here, and you've got three people in the academic model right here. And, and I think that any of us would be happy to help you in the future if you have questions. You know, this is the, this is the time to, to ask these questions. And no question is a dumb question at all. Now, let me, let me, I'll just uh, add into the, um, into the mix. I, my, anybody who's trained with me knows that I like to tell them that if your first year of practice is not the worst year of your life, you've got a really terrible life. Um, and then the second thing is that, that, um, that I think what's, what, what's, what's the, the issue about during that first year, whether you've got partners, and I think it can be either, I'm obviously you know, biased somewhat to an academic setting, always having been there. But, but the truth is, what really matters is the, is the ethos of the group that you're in. And whether it's a private practice group or an academic group, the question is, is the ethos one where people help each other out or not? And, and it's, it can be both ways, whether it's academic or private. There are academic practices where, where the, everybody hates each other, and you walk in the room and it's, you know, what happened in so-and-so's room? You know, that's, uh, yeah, I like that. And the same thing in private practice and vice versa. So uh, I'm sure that if you worked with Vino and you had trouble and you said, called up Vino and you said, Vino, I need some help to get in here. He'd come in there and help. You just do it. You just, you just do it. That's exactly right, Tor. I mean, that's that, important. It, it gets back a little bit to this whole business about the, about the interaction, about the relationship. That's what you're looking for, is the right relationship for the career that you want. Right. No, I, think that's, uh, I think that's really good advice. And uh, as time's winding down, you know, this is something that's come up. Uh, I've heard multiple, multiple people asking about it. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll leave this to the panelists as a, as a final question. Um, what exactly is social etiquette when you're, when you're doing these Zoom interviews? You know, People joke about wearing pants, um, which uh, I'm sure is probably a wise idea. But um, you know, it, should, should this? Are, when you sit down with a with an applicant, are you expecting 
them to treat it like a like an in-person interview wear a suit um, show up on uh, you know absolutely on time um, flexibility you know does it need to be in the middle of the day take a day off of clinical responsibilities or skip a case um, is this something that can be flexible or is this something that moving into this air um, in your opinion um, does this need to be treated like a formal um, Interview. Without a doubt, and obviously everybody else will speak up, but without a doubt, I think that you have to you have to look like Melanie does, right? Um, just saying, <laughs> God said it right. I think you have to. You can't show up with you know. It's got to be as if you were an actual interview. For me, that's critically important. I'm sorry, sloppiness gets um, you know sloppiness on Zoom is to me is what you're going to show up with when you when you know uh, when you're here seeing a patient. Um, it doesn't matter if it's a VIP patient or a regular patient. All patients are important, equally it's important. It's to me professionalism. It's, yep, absolutely. No doubt about it. All of the things that you talked about that touch on professionalism. Yeah. Now, we're all surgeons and we understand stuff happens. And right. if something has to cancel because a patient is sick, that's a different story. Right. But, you know, don't forget this for the men, don't forget to shave. You know, I mean, that's a suit with a tie. Yeah. You can wear a bow tie if you can wear a bow tie. If you oh, need. gosh, no, don't do that. Just but, but be professional. Yeah. yeah. Look at the camera. Just like, try to engage as much as you as much as you can or would normally. I've seen some people kind of sitting back and doing this stuff and just looking completely. First of all, you couldn't see them. And as Chris already said, it's hard enough to get a mental a really clear mental picture, but eye contact still matters and, and joking and letting some of your personality come through really matters. Uh, the other thing that I see a lot is when I, I've done a lot of zoom stuff, everybody has, but when, with stuff and you have to have enough light in your room, by the way. Yeah. That's critically important. Not light behind you facing this way, but light in front of you facing your face. So you gotta learn zoom adequate, quite honestly. Um, and you can't look down. You have to look at your camera, which is you, like, you got to learn the technology that makes it makes it more savvy. I mean, you were going to say something. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. no, that's it. All, all the things that everyone's iterated. You know, make sure your video's on. Right? If you can see people and they can't see you, that's not that's not good. You do want to dress professionally. I think you lose the ability to have a presence. So body language and how you control a room or how you react with the room is really difficult. And I think, uh, and there's some online uh, etiquettes that you can watch a quick little five minute video on how to do that appropriately. But the things that used to carry on with a little smile or laugh or a joke that you could beat people, you can't. So you have to be really uh, aware of your words more than uh, used to. Just a quick follow-up to that um, with regards to next steps after your initial interview. If your initial interviews are all virtual and you're concerned about losing this job opportunity, <laughs> is there a situation in which you would advise that applicants sign a contract before they visited the hospital themselves or wait until you're cleared by your institution just to make sure? Okay. Let's go see it. I would, I would. I would say, I mean, you know, someone made the, like, would you get married to someone that you only met by Zoom? Answer that question. And if the answer is no, I mean, this is what your first job is. It's a marriage. 
you know, you're probably, if you are married, going to spend more time in this job than you are with your spouse. So um, you really, really want a face-to-face um, interaction. You need I, to meet I, I all the partners, even the, even the guy that they're trying to get you to not talk to. You need to talk to him too. Um, the other thing be- I want to mention is make sure that for the etiquette, make sure you have a Wi-Fi system that's secure. Um, that I've seen that happen a lot where somebody's Wi-Fi system is not good and have a backup Wi-Fi, maybe have a Wi-Fi or have something, maybe even be quite honestly, being on a landline connection is better than a Wi-Fi system. So that's the only other thing that I would mention is an edit because you don't want to come in and out. That's it just, it doesn't present yourself very well. Yeah. This isn't meant to make you feel apprehensive. I just, I think that, I think if you just consider professionalism, you want to be professional. We're hiring. We want to hire a professional. Somebody, if they say that they're going to take call, they're going to take call. They're going to answer their phone. They're going to be responsible for their patients. They're going to take things seriously. They're going to, they're going to show up at mortality morbidity conference and, and take it seriously. They're going to listen to the suggestions that you make. They're going to, to um, correct behaviors that you correct them on. It's, it's just simply being a professional that's that's what you want to convey great hunter you're on mute yes uh thank you all very much for your time and uh, i think this has been really helpful as a reminder to uh to everyone this will be posted on the tsra youtube channel um so that that folks can continue to watch it but uh, i really appreciate everyone's time Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.